Street. Hopefully your hearts are encouraged. And I'm looking forward to worship this morning. Uh, welcome to visitors that are here this morning. We're glad to have you here. Feel free to join us as we worship the Lord. Thank you also, Arlen, for that, the songs and that reading. Um, before we pray, just introduce the message this morning. Um, I have been doing a series through the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and I got away from that last month, and I'd like to come back to that today. The verse we'll be looking at this morning is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and I'll read the verse. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, anticipating meeting you here. Lord, we've already sung songs, and as we come into your presence, we ask, Lord, that you would come and enter this place, fill it with your presence. Lord, I pray this morning as we look into the word, that truly we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Thank you for the promise of being filled. Lord, I pray that everything we do here this morning would be pleasing to you would glorify you and honor you. So please come during this time as we look into the word. I also pray for Brother Kendall as he preaches at Cornerstone this morning. I ask you to bless him and use him also for your glory. Thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'd like to, uh, just as a quick review, read the first five verses along with verse six. As a reminder of where we begin, this is Jesus speaking to a multitude of people. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. And we've already looked at the first couple of, the, of what we call the Beatitudes, and we're going to be looking at number uh, uh, verse 6 this morning. Let's, if you are able, don't have a child on your lap or are not incapacitated, please stand with me as we read the text here this morning. <clears throat> Let's read this all together. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Thank you. You may be seated. As in the prior Beatitudes, it begins with the word blessed. As I understand, the word blessed means to be supremely happy, satisfied, but mostly happy. Happy are those which hunger and thirst after righteousness. As we get into, I'm going to give some illustrations later, but the hungering and thirsting, it's a deep hunger and a deep thirst. Think, think starving. Think desperate for water, okay? Beyond just Hey, that sounds kind of good. I think I'll nibble on that. No, this is, this is something that needs to be satisfied. It's a deep, deep hunger and a deep thirst. In Vine's uh, dictionary, it says of the word righteousness. So the hungering and thirsting is after righteousness. So we would like to look at this morning, what is righteousness in this context here? Here it says in Vine's, whatever is right or just in itself, whatever is right or just in itself, Whatever conforms to the revealed will of God. Hungering and thirsting for rightness, for justness, for anything that is to be revealed of God, his will. That's what the hunger and thirst is towards. Now, this beatitude, 
kind of logically follows the first three. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. And it seems like the first couple uh, tend to look at more of a focus on ourselves and our own sense of need. And maybe some of the more negative things of the human heart that we need to look at in coming to Christ. In our poverty of spirit, in in the first one, we see that um, we are helpless, we are weak, we are selfish, we have self-interest. And we start to see that there is sin in us that has marred the perfection that Christ or that God created us to be. That goes all the way back to, to the beginning. Sin has marred God's perfection. And so as we're coming into these Beatitudes, those first few help us to see who are we actually. We have to come with poverty of spirit, recognizing that we bring nothing. We deserve nothing. So this, this particular one um, is kind of coming to the end of those. Now, it's also an excellent test to see whether or not I am in the kingdom of God as a Christian. This hungering and thirsting. And I'd like to end the message this morning with a few tests a few tests of hungering and thirsting, all right? So it has, to be, it has to be tangible and practical at some point. But this one here helps us recognize, am I in the kingdom as a Christian? Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? This is not simply prescriptives telling you what to do. It's indicative of what is, of what is actually going on in your own heart. This verse gives one of the most, or one of the more notable statements of the Gospels and everything that it offers us. Because ultimately, we see that one of the fundamental things, or parts of the Gospel, is that salvation is by grace. It's through faith. It's not something you're going to earn. You're never going to do enough to earn this. It's by grace through faith. It's also uh, spoken about as being a gift. It's the gift of God. So, this verse is a very, very important verse in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. So think about hunger here a little bit. Uh, Over 20 years ago, about 21 years ago, my wife Melanie and I moved to the country of Belize for a couple of years to teach school and to serve there. Uh, We were there with Lyle and Cammie, actually. And I think about what I was like when I left to go there. And a lot of my appetites for food were very American. I was a cheeseburger and fries kind of guy, meat and potatoes, you know, all these, all these, these American, you know, the apple pie and all the stereotypical foods. Those were my appetites. That's what I was used to eating. Now, I already knew that it was different in Belize because I'd visited a, a few times before. But when we got to Belize, our, our food changed, mostly out of necessity because you couldn't buy a lot of American foods. And so rice and beans and chicken, Ricardo chicken, which is amazing, but that was, those were the staple foods. And I was okay with it because it was, it was pretty good, but I still at heart was, you know, I'm, I'm an American boy here and I like, I like my foods. But over time, as we started to eat this, it became for sure a Sunday noon staple. Every Sunday, chicken and rice and beans, every Sunday. And one of the things I had observed one time when I was visiting down there prior was somebody cutting up an avocado into slices and then just picking those slices up and downing them. And I had tried one, and it was terrible. In fact, I didn't like guacamole. There was, th- those things were not good to me. Another thing I didn't like very well was cilantro, an herb that's pretty strong. Had no taste for that. Well, I realized that that starts showing up in a lot of foods down there. And pretty soon, I, I, 
you know, it's not bad. And the more we ate it, I kind of, I started to like avocado, especially put a little bit of salt on it. And then cilantro and foods. And, and wouldn't you know it, after about three years, I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, when we came back home, you know, in some ways it was maybe not a letdown, but I started to miss that weekly Sunday lunch of rice and beans and, and, uh, and this chicken. And also cilantro and uh, avocado have become some of my favorite tastes. As unique as they are, they're, they're very good. Now that was a gradual process of changing an appetite. An appetite that wasn't there, but it developed over time. One other appetite I had before we went down there, and I still can't believe I had this appetite so much, but, and I know I'm going to hit some people here, but a good cold glass of Mountain Dew, a can of Mountain Dew. And growing up, that was one of my favorite treats. In fact, the place I worked for a while, we had this in the fridge, and every day on a hot summer afternoon, we'd go in there and probably drank more than one certain days, but that was just the greatest. Can of Mountain Dew. Well, one thing that happened when we got to Belize was you couldn't buy a lot of things, and I actually, the first six months of us living down there, I ate so much less sugar than I had before, just because it wasn't really available, and I actually lost weight, too, but I didn't eat a lot of sugar. Well, about six months after we were there, one day we went over to Spanish Lookout, which is a Russian Mennonite colony, and they have what we call our Walmart, uh, Farmer's Trading Center. If you've been down there before, it's kind of the superstore of, of down there. And when we were there, I remember looking through the cooler, and wouldn't you know, I spotted a can of Mountain Dew tucked in behind some other stuff. And that wasn't typical, because that had to be shipped down, and uh, they didn't bottle it down there. And so I thought, you know, it's time for a treat. And so I got the Mountain Dew, and uh, did our shopping, and I just, this was going to be great. You know, a taste of home. And I popped that can, I took a drink, and my heart was, it sank. It wasn't good anymore. It was sugary, it was syrupy, and if you like it yet, that's fine. But my, my appetite, my taste had completely changed. By being away from that for so long, uh, to, to this day, I cannot really enjoy a regular Mountain Dew. It just doesn't, it's just too sweet, there's too much sugar. Well, what happened? It was a change of appetite. It was a change of, of diet to the point where it actually affected my desires. So from the start, hunger and thirst, I want us to realize that it is something within our control. All right, you might think that the appetites you have today, especially if we talk about food, it's like, oh, no, I'll, I'll never change on that. Well, you could, it's possible. But in a spiritual sense, our appetites can change. And so how does that happen? The truly happy people in life are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, we are not told in this verse to hunger or thirst after blessedness, okay? Jesus did not say we should hunger and thirst for blessedness, but think about it, or happiness. Let's use the words interchangeably. Isn't that one of the primary pursuits of mankind is happiness? First of all, think of, think of the world, those who are not Christians, those who are not in Christ. What is the great pursuit of life? It's to be happy. It's to have enjoyment. Now, sometimes that pursuit of happiness can be to deal with pain or to, uh, to make life manageable. And so we pursue happy things, good things, to help deal with pain in our lives or to fill a void. Everyone that doesn't have Christ in their hearts has a void. And so many pursue happiness as a way to fill the void. Well, Jesus didn't say to pursue happiness. 
because ultimately we know the pursuit of happiness, uh, it's an endless pursuit because it never quite satisfies. You always, you always need something more. Happiness ultimately is the result of seeking something else of great value. All right, so it's more, an, it's more a result of than it is an actual thing to pursue. Happiness comes when we pursue the right things. So that's a tragedy in the world. Think about uh, when I said sometimes people pursue happiness to deal with pain. Think about a doctor. A person comes into the doctor and they say, doctor, I have pain. My, my body hurts. And so a good doctor looks for the cause. What's causing this pain? Because we know pain is a symptom. And they look for the cause, and a good doctor, once they identify the cause, they look for a treatment plan and will treat the cause. Now, it's very tempting to deal with symptoms. Uh, I don't like the symptoms of sickness. You know, if I get a headache, I'm quick to go grab a, an Advil, and I know some of you don't do that, and that's okay. But we like to deal with symptoms sometimes because symptoms are unpleasant. And so if we simply deal with symptoms in our life, that's where people pursue happiness because happiness, it dulls the symptoms of a broken life, of an empty heart, all right? So that's why we don't pursue happiness on its own. The ultimate treatment for pain or disease is to go to the source of that, to find the problem. The more the world seeks after happiness as a cure for pain, the more it finds further wretchedness. It's just a downward spiral. But that, that may be the world. But what about us in the church? I find more and more that people are also unhappy and not satisfied when they're within the church and in the family of God. Why is that? Why is that? Because the promise here is that if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're going to get it. You're going to be full. You're going to be filled. Filled meaning satisfied. So why do we not find satisfaction sometimes even when we are in church? have this continual hungering and thirsting. Well, let's look a bit further at this verse. What is righteousness? To what is this righteousness that is referred? Paul refers to righteousness in Romans. He says that this is a righteousness which is of God by faith. So it comes from God. God is its source. And by it, we are justified. I'm going to look at a few verses here in just a little bit about justification. So this morning... There's two parts to this righteousness I want to focus on. One is we are justified. There is a righteousness of justification, but there is a further righteousness of sanctification. There's two ideas that are are going to be in play here this morning. There's justification and sanctification. And what is the difference and what does it mean? We're to to thirst and hunger after that. So what, what does this all mean? The act of hungering and thirsting after righteousness ultimately means a desire to be free from sin in all its forms and in its every manifestation. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to also put it up here on the screen. It might be hard for some of you to read. It's going to be Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 31. This part- I have two passages in Romans I'm going to uh, look at this morning. This first one, he talks about righteousness, and, and I'm, I'm seeing it describing the the justification process. Sometimes we hear those words thrown around, and especially if you're a young Christian, maybe you hear justification, you hear sanctification. Like, what's the difference, and does it even matter? Aren't we all just, don't we all just come to Christ, and He saves us, and then that's that's where it lies? Well, there's, there's more explanation here I think is worth looking at. First of all, before we read the passage, just remember that 
sin separates man from God. All right, that goes back to the original sin. Sin separates man from God. So we are alienated from God in our sin. And so we all have that longing to again have things right. That's that longing for righteousness. We want it to be right. We want wholeness. We want relationship with God. But the problem is we were separated. We have been alienated from God. And so every person, even if they're not acting out on these longings, it's some way we long for things to be right. Now, some people never, they never find that because they reject Christ. He's, he's the only one who can bring us to that. But inwardly, we all know that we're not satisfied and we want something more. And it's, it's a reflection of separation from God and that there needs to be a way to, to restore this relationship. We also hate to be uh, bound by sin. Let's jump in here into uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And I'm just going to pause on that word because the screen switches here to the next part of the passage. I'm going to pause and let's just look at a few of the things we've already read here. All right, so we already know that, that through the law, in verse 20 he says, no one's going to be justified through the law, all right? That's why there was the continual offerings for sin. They just had to be offered repeatedly in the Old Testament because ultimately there could be no justification in the law. But something changed. Verse 21, he says, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, it was manifested through Christ. It was made known through Christ. He exemplified it. He was it. He was righteous. In verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. All right. So this righteousness was, was of Christ. And the only way we could access it was going to be through faith. We were going to have to believe in the one who was righteous. The one who was able to take sin upon himself. But then you get down to the, the end part here of this first section. He says, God hath set forth to be a propitiation. What in the world does that mean? I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do have dictionaries, and I did my best to, to look this up and try to understand. What's he saying? God set him forth to be a propitiation. What does that mean? So the actual word propitiate as a verb for means to make favorably inclined to appease or conciliate, which conciliate has the idea of reconciling or, or bringing somebody to good standing. Now, it says in the New, I read in the New Testament, you don't see, the, you only see this word used twice. It's used here as propitiation. It's used in Hebrews when it talks about the mercy seat, which was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what was the Ark of the Covenant? Inside it was, there was a, uh, a pot of manna, there was Aaron's rod, and there was the books of the law were in there. And those were in 
the temple, or the ta- first of all, the tabernacle, but then the temple in the most holy place. And on this mercy seat were two cherubim there. And if you look even in the Old Testament, it says that that was the place where God, he spoke from there. So it, it, emblem- it, it, it that was the place where God was in the most holy place. So here, this propitiation is also the idea of the mercy seat. Now, so that's the way it's used in the New Testament. The Greek word for that, as I understand it, so the Greeks would talk about appeasing the gods. The Greeks had all kinds of gods. And the gods were not typically favorable to you, all right? Gods normally are not happy gods. They have to be appeased. And so the idea of of a propitiation was appeasing the gods. So to sacrifice to the gods was to hopefully gain their favor or to give a gift to the gods or some offering to the gods was always so that the gods would be happy, right? You see that through all kinds of idol pagan worship is what does it take to appease the gods? Well, that's not how the God of heaven is. God was not a God who had to be appeased by people coming to him in that way. So in this sense, it's opposite. God here is the one who's giving the propitiation. It's Christ. And what does it appease? What does it reconcile? Well, it it deals with the sin problem. So Christ comes, it says, God has set him forth to be that propitiation that would satisfy the requirements of righteousness. Because none of us are righteous. None of us can stand without guilt before God. It's not possible in our own righteousness. I don't care how good you live, it'll never work. So there had to be something that would satisfy the requirements of righteousness, and that was Christ. So here it says, through that propitiation, he is, he is the one who initiates the reconciliation. Does that make sense? Remember, sin separates from God. And so by God offering through Christ, if you have faith in it, there it says, through faith in his blood. That's what it would take. God offers it through faith in his blood. Man gets to be brought back to God. So God's not the one who moved. All right? This, this separation from God... God is immutable. He's unchanging. God always was who he was. It was man who fell. So the reconciliation, the one who had to be brought back was us, all right? We don't have to appease God and get him to come our way again. No, we had to be brought back to him, but that was going to be done through faith in his son. So this is describing justification through faith in his son. That is what brings us back in in right relationship with God. Now let's finish this, this portion of scripture here. Verse 25, that the last says, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. All right, so he justifies those who believe. It's faith. We believe, therefore, we take on the righteousness of Christ. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So this righteousness... This process of justification was that we could never be justified on our own. All right? So going back to the beatitude, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, 
It was never going to be a righteousness that, that you would do that would make you suitable for God to be in his presence. It had to be something better than you. It had to be something beyond you, and it took the righteousness of Christ. So that's the righteousness of justification that makes us right before God. And I want to say about this point here, because I think sometimes there's a bit of confusion about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God. There's other scriptures that would relate to this, and we don't have time to go into them. But we, the, the moment we place faith in Christ, we are immediately justified. All right? Our sin is immediately dealt with. We are immediately reconciled to God. So you may ask the question, well, if that's the case, what does sanctification have to do with anything? If I'm made right with God, isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of being a Christian? Let's get right with God. And then the rest of the, you know, as long as we're right with God, why, why couldn't I live any other way? So what is the point of sanctification? If justification satisfies the requirements of God, then why should there be a further process? Think about that a little bit. Here's part of the problem we run into. So we are justified. We are considered righteous before God. It it speaks in Scripture, too, that when Abraham believed God, God counted that belief as righteousness. And those who are the children of Abraham, the the children of, of Abraham through his faith, I'm not quoting it correctly, if we have that same faith, we, too, get that righteousness imputed to us. So we are seen as righteous before God, all right? That's the gift that we get. But what about the pollution of sin? What about the desire for sin? If you read in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this warring of flesh and spirit. He says, in essence, if I say it in my own words, he says, the things I desire to do as a child of God, I want to please God, I want to do all this for God, but my flesh comes and, and I'm just warring between what my mind and my heart desire, but my flesh wants to sin. And he's like, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Paul gets kind of desperate about this whole situation. So what do you do about that? My desires are towards Christ. He's changed me. He's forgiven me. And yet I I struggle here in the flesh. What do we do with some of that? I think, I believe the process of sanctification. Let me just give you a brief definition as as I would word it this morning. What is the purpose of sanctification? It's the uprooting and removal of our sinful desires And that happens through our yielding to God, okay? Let me illustrate it this way. So I'm a farmer. Now, we do no-till, but there's a lot of people that do what we call conventional tillage. They go out and they plow and they rip up the soil and they disc it and they they work it. So let's say that you have a field that hasn't been farmed for, for a few years. And you can imagine what it looks like. Covered in weeds. Completely covered in weeds. You could say that that field is not... It's separated. Let's just, I know this illustration can break down, but just visualize this with me. That is a field that has not been, it's not productive. So a farmer comes in with a plow or a deep chisel and he rips up the field and all those weeds get tore up and they kind of get buried. And then he comes through with a disc and he chops that up and it gets even more, you know, works even better. And then he goes over with like a field cultivator. And by the time he's worked this thing several times, all those weeds are gone. They're buried. There is a new, fresh start. There is, it is, it is reconciled to what it was meant to be. Soil was meant to grow things, right? And to be fruitful. So you have this good soil. Well, then the farmer comes along and he plants a crop. 
and he, maybe he plants corn and soybeans if you're in this area, and he puts those seeds into the ground. And this, this, is, a, this is a field that is now, can now be fruitful. Sin has been eradicated, right? Well, what happens next? All the previous sin has been dealt with. All the weeds are gone. But as the good seed begins to grow, you know what grows with it sometimes? Weeds, right? There's some weeds. Now, the field has been reconciled, if I want to use the word like that. But the farmer immediately says, okay, this process of growth, there's still some remnants here of, there's some seeds here yet. There's some desires, maybe you could call those seeds the desires of sin that, that have to still be dealt with. While we are fully justified, there still is desires that have to change. I described my appetite changes when I moved to Belize, that while it took a while, they eventually they did change. And so the farmer comes through and he has to deal with weeds. So either he cultivates them, tills them up, or today they use chemicals, you can spray it. But he deals with those weeds and that good crop keeps growing, right? And there comes a point in that crop, and this is what we always like to see by about midsummer, there comes a point where that crop has matured enough that it creates what we call a canopy. And the soybeans, they bush out, and the, and the corn bushes out, and it starts to create shade over the remaining soil. Well, weeds don't grow in shade. It takes sunlight to grow, right? And so as the crop matures, it, there is less and less uh, of an environment for weeds to flourish. All right? So... Now, we get to harvest sometimes. We still, there's still some weeds here and there when we get to harvest, but it, it is part of farming. But weeds do not have the chance to grow uh, as this plant matures. So I, I see this, the process, and I know the illustration can break down. I see the process of sanctification somewhat the same way, that as we grow and mature, our desires begin to change, and some of that desire for certain sins, that desire for, to please our flesh, it doesn't fully go away because we are in the flesh. Someday we will be fully redeemed. But we change and we grow. And those things become less and less of our experience. Now, in any part of that process, can we say that we are justified? We are made right? That we are reconciled? Yes. So if you're insecure about that, if you're not sure, you can be confident that you are saved. All right? That does not have to be in question. But there's also the part of growth and of that sinfulness, that those, those, those desires for sin to be rooted out. Because that's part of the thing that we deal with sometimes is not only do we struggle uh, with sin, but it's even that we, we long for it. We desire it. And so those longings have to be turned. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And what's the promise on the back? If you hunger for that, you get filled. He fills you with that. And if you want an interesting exercise or study, uh, search through the New Testament for the word filled. I didn't have, there's a bunch of verses you could use, but there's so many ways. Now, sometimes it's negative, but there's so many ways in which we can be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy, filled with peace. And it describes all these different things. Here he says, if you long for righteousness, that rightness, that character of Jesus that essence of who God is, he said, if you hunger for that, you're going to get it. He's going to give it to you, and he's going to change you. So, 
Salvation by grace through faith. We are, both, we are justified, brought back into right relationship with God. But from, that's just the beginning. We live, we go on with Christ and he shapes us. He changes the desires of our heart. He makes our character change. We flourish and we grow and we become like that, that field that was cleared. And it started off a little, maybe a little rocky sometimes. You know, it was growing, but the weeds were still present. That's why we need to be patient with young believers, young Christians, is they have to work through some things. But as they mature, as they grow, we see more of Christ, we see less of self. And hopefully that's the journey we are on until the day that the Lord uh, calls us to be home. Let's read this now on sanctification. Romans 6, 12 to 23. This is now a reflection on righteousness as being living out of a changed heart. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of, right, of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let me just stop there with that emphasis. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And he says, why? Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So that tells me that when you were under the law, sin still had dominion. That's why there was the repeated offerings year after year, day after day. Sin had dominion. But what happened when Christ came? How many times was Christ offered for sin? Daily? Once for all, right? So to live under grace, as I understand it, is that the sin problem is not, the sin does not have to have dominion over you. That power of sin has been broken. There was a sacrifice that satisfied the requirements of, of that sin. And so if sin has dominion, if you're in bondage to sin, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. And maybe that's the sad thing that happens sometimes in the church is there is a bondage of sin and people find it hard to overcome. And it's not because that Christ didn't do enough of the work. He did. He doesn't have dominion over you. He says you're under grace. Well, that's good news. Well, then Paul anticipates what comes next. So if you're under grace, then what? He says in verse 16, uh, verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So if that's the reality is, oh, we're, we're under grace now. He says, God forbid. We don't sin because we're under grace. That power has been broken. And then here is, is let, me, uh, let me highlight this here, this next verse. 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And obedience unto righteousness. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There is an obedience he says, he talks about yielding ourselves. Whoever you yield to, that's who your master is. Back in 13, he says, you don't yield yourself to unrighteousness anymore. You don't give up yourself to just sin as you please because you're alive from the dead. Now, you used to do that because you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But now that you're alive, now you yield yourself to a new master, right? Verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Hmm. So freedom from sin results in me now being, other translations say, a slave to righteousness. But a servant of righteousness. That means different choices. 
I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity. By the way, the word iniquity there means lawlessness. As you used to yield yourself to lawlessness. There's no, there's nothing I need to respect or honor. I do what I want to do. He says, as you did that, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. We become servants of righteousness so that we become holy. We don't try to be holy on our own. It's the result of becoming a servant of righteousness. As God works within us, we become holy. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we become free from sin, we become servants to God, and then the fruitfulness, he says, leads us into holiness. That's that righteousness of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And it says the end, that's the ultimate, is the everlasting life. Someday, this will be fully, you'll fully experience life like you won't even experience it now. And notice the last verse here in verse 23. Notice the two different words here. Wages and gift. Wages and gift. What are wages? Earned, right? Payment. Wages. You get wages from your employer. The wages, the payment for sin is death. But notice that God doesn't give us wages, right? You could never, you couldn't work hard enough for it. You could work your whole life, and your wage, the wages, it wouldn't match up. You could never satisfy it. The gift of God, it's a gift. He offers you the gift of salvation. He offers you the gift of righteousness and of holiness. That's a gift. Ultimately ending in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Justified by grace through faith, sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus, eradicating that sin within us. So this is a good thing, brothers and sisters. It's a good thing to desire this, all right? This is not a formula of something to do necessarily. There is a response required on our part. But to hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's that longing that I want to be holy. I want to be like Jesus. I want my life to have his character. I want people, when they see me, to think of Jesus when they see me. It's a desire to show these beatitudes in my daily living. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to be meek. I want to hunger and thirst. That's that desire. That's what hungering and thirsting is like. And ultimately, we want to show spirit fruit in our lives. I want my life to demonstrate the spirit fruit. I want it to be evident that God's spirit is in me and he works in me. And that you can tell it. That's what my desires are when I hunger and thirst after righteousness. And ultimately, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, then your supreme desire, and use the word passion if you want to, that ultimate desire in your life, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, is that you know God. You want to know Him. You want to have fellowship with Him. You want to have relationship with Him. That's your ultimate longing. And last uh, weekend, when John Koblenz was talking about 
God wants us to, to love him and to know him. It's that idea that not only do we, we love him because he first loved us, but we desire to know him as a friend. Abraham was called a friend of God. We get to know him. That becomes our life desire and passion is, God, I want to know you more. That's what hungering and thirsting after God is like. Obviously, it's not something that we can do by our own efforts, our own endeavors. Being poor in spirit already negates that. We don't come, with, we don't come and, and brag to God about who we are already. It's not just a passing feeling. It's a desperation. It's this starvation. I saw a quote here. This idea of being desperately hungry by uh, J.N. Darby. He says it this way. To be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in his heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. Isn't that true? The further down the prodigal son went, and he finally ends up in the pig pen, and then he just further gets worse by eating food for pigs. Yeah, that, that's hunger. That, that is a hunger for sure. But to be so desperate that I would, I would love to go back and be a servant just to be back with my father again and to be fed by him. And he goes back. And the surprising thing is in that story, he goes back completely destitute and completely in need. But instead of being brought in as a servant, he's brought in as a celebrated son. And the party begins when he comes back home. That's an amazing story. I love the story of the prodigal son. The unexpected is what actually happened when he comes back. Psalm 42.1 says, As the deer, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee. I'd like to look at a few tests here yet of our spiritual appetite. Just as a summary of, of this whole idea of, of being hungering, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you shall be filled. The amazing thing about this is that's very true. The moment you come to Christ, you are filled. But you know what? Then you can be filled some more. And then you're still hungry. And then you're hungrier yet. And he continues to fill you and to feed you and to nourish you. And where Jesus describes about the Christian, who out of, who, the one who has the Holy Spirit, it's like, like rivers of water spilling out of his belly. It just keeps coming. And, it just, and the more we hunger, the more we thirst, the more we long for, for God. We keep being filled and refilled. It's a continuing process. There is almost a paradox in this whole truth. In one sense, through justification, he says we are made perfect. And yet he says, go on to perfection. Be perfect. You are perfect. You've been made perfect. You've been justified. But now go on. Become more perfect. Become more like Jesus. Become more like Christ. Let his essence be what comes out of you. That's amazing. We are made to seek perfection. Is that your experience this morning? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty after God? Several practical tests here. So, what about your spiritual appetite or mine? Do you reflect verse 6, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Are you finding blessing because that's true? Are you finding happiness in Christ because you are, that is your hunger and thirst? Or is your hunger and thirst elsewhere? 
There's, about, there's five tests here I'm just going to briefly mention. Tests of our spiritual appetite. Number one is a self-awareness of our own false righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul mentions, he says, All these things I count but loss for the excellency of Christ. He says, they're like, they're like dung. They're like refuse. All these things that I was. He, was a fair, you know, he mentioned all his credentials. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He had all these things. Very well educated. He said, those things, are all, they're nothing to me. And if, if Paul had any sense of, of coming to God and to Christ saying, God, look who I am. Look at my credentials. Paul says, no. He was, he was aware that with th- those things meant nothing. He says, those are actually a loss to me. Now, he, he benefited from them. But as far as his standing with God, they were nothing. So part of our uh, test for us is a self-awareness of our own false righteousness. Remembering who we are before God. We don't bring a righteousness of our own. That's the first test. Another test is our avoidance of everything that is opposed to righteousness. So you think about that a bit. Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? I don't know. Are you hungering and thirsting after things that are opposed to that? Sometimes we play a little bit on the fringe with sin, or we play a little bit with things from the world that we know are, eh, they don't really feed the right appetites in us. Do you treat it like the plague? If you have, uh, well, think back to COVID a couple years ago. We don't like to talk about that, but any plagues from the past even, when you know there's infection in a certain place, you avoid it, right? Anything that, that represents this, this disease, we stay away from it. So, when we talk about hunger and thirst, uh, one thing to think about, it, one way to think about this is uh, in our natural sense. When you're hungry before a meal, most times it's because you haven't really been snacking, right? In between meals. So when you're always kind of nibbling on something, you get to a meal and you're just like, eh, I'm not really that hungry for good food, you know? Maybe better for me, but, you know, I've been eating the chips and I've been eating the, the junk food and all this stuff. A little bit, our, our spiritual appetite's a little bit the same way. We kind of are okay with the junk in our lives. We have a pipeline into our brains sometimes of, of content that we process all week long. So think about that. Are these things fostering a hunger and thirst or are they quenching it? That's the second test. If it's opposed to righteousness, avoid it. Get away from it. To, to hunger and thirst after righteousness means we place ourselves in its path. What do I mean by this? Oh, sometimes we get the idea that righteousness will just happen to us. You know, it's, it's the work of God in us. That's true, but we also avail ourselves to it. And the best story I can think of is, is the story in the New Testament of blind Bartimaeus, a blind man who has been blind since birth. His prospects are terrible. He's never going to get his sight. Bartimaeus has no way of ever getting his sight back on his own. That's not possible. But what does he do? He finds out that Jesus is coming and he's going to be on this road Blind Bartimaeus goes to the place where he knows the righteous one will pass. And he gets in his way. And he creates a scene. And he yells and he carries on until he gets the attention of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He gives him his sight. Now, Bartimaeus could have stayed at home that day and said, it's no use. I've been to all the doctors. No one can heal me. It's not possible. But in his act of faith, he says, I got to be in the place. I got to be in the place where healing can happen. This pursuit of righteousness is somewhat the same. We avail ourselves of the opportunities we have to grow. That means showing up for worship at church. That's why we come, is we place ourselves in a position where we can hear from God, where we can fellowship with others. 
We place ourselves in the company of those who are of like precious faith. All right? That reinforces our belief. And so we do play a part. You do place yourself in positions in life where, you are, where, this, where this grace is available to you. But if we don't do that, then we miss those opportunities. Anyone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will take whatever opportunities they are presented to find it. The next two are very simple. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means studying the Bible. How do you get to know the one that you love unless you read his word? That's just basic. We have to be in the word. Not in a legalistic sense, not in a sense where you keep track of your hours, your minutes, and chalk it up. No, we go to read the word. We go to get to know him. I like the way John mentioned it last weekend. We don't just go to the word to see what can I get out of it today? What's my nugget for the day? Sometimes that comes, but we read the word to know him. We read the word to know the one who authored it. What, who is God? What is he about? I'm reading through Exodus right now in Leviticus. And if I just read that to try to find a nugget every day, it's not always there. But I do get to learn who God is. I get to learn how he feels and what he thinks about his people and all the things that he, he did back in those times. So read the word to know him. And if you don't think you have time, well, I think you know the answer to that. We find time for the things we care about. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, number five, means that we pray. God alone is the one who gives us this gift. It's an amazing gift. So talk to the one. Come to the one who gives the gift. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gift he offered. That's the gift of righteousness. And for those who hunger and thirst for it, brothers and sisters, you have a promise. You're going to be filled. You're going to get it. Shall we kneel and pray?